All right, if you have a, a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, while you are doing that, um, this is the nice thing about, I guess, technology. Um, news is, is coming real time here. So I actually have heard from Scott, Pastor Scott. He, uh, it sounds like what he's dealing with is not probably virus um, and is, well, not probably, is not a virus, is not something would be contagious, but it's something that has happened before. So as a result of that, he said he's actually feeling quite a bit better already. Praise the Lord. Uh, Maria says, praise the Lord. Um, and so I, he says he's fine to go, for us to go ahead this evening uh, uh, with our uh, members meeting. So let's go ahead and plan on doing our members meeting this evening, just like we had uh, before. And uh, if we need to change that, we can get in touch with you, but I think it's going to be fine. So I'm very thankful that uh, he's in the spot that he is already. Thank the Lord for that. Well, um, 1 Samuel chapter 4, I think handouts are, are coming uh, for you. I'm going to first just read through this account, um, and uh, and then we'll dive in. Uh, it, I know you've probably heard me say this before, but there's so many ways to measure the beauty of the Word of God. Um, there's just it's so it's so immense the, just the beauty of it it's incredible but one of the ways you can measure the beauty of the word of God is just to measure it on a literary value um, I, I'm not kidding as you look at this story written this morning one of the things I want you to see is I want you to see how incredible the writing is I mean it is suspenseful as you move through it the details that you're given versus given it's incredible so i really want us to see that together um and i i think you're just going to be amazed at at how incredible just the literature value is not to mention it is the very word of god verse one of chapter four the word of samuel came to all israel now israel went out to battle against the philistines they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on, uh, on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Verse 4, so the people went to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These 
are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on the seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is he up for? Then the man hurried and he came and told Eli. Now Eli, he was 98 years old and his eyes were set so they could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, well, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. But the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, that's the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of, about the time of her death, the, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you have borne a son. She did not answer, nor did she pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Father, we owe you so much. You have been so kind to us. But to give us words like this, to have it penned in this way, it's so kind. God, I pray for help. This is a dark episode in the life of your people, in the life of human history. This passage itself, it's dark, it's rough, it's hard. We don't do well with that. We want to brush that away. God, it is ever relevant in our lives. It is necessary for us to hear. I pray by your spirit, you would give us ears to hear. Father, please 
Let us see our need for mercy. Let us trust in your mercy, but Father, please let us see how much we need the mercy of God. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes to be awakened again to how sweet your mercy is because how dark our sin is. I pray for help by your spirit. I pray that the name of Jesus, the perfect ark of God, that he would be lifted up and treasured among his people. We ask all these things to you, our Father, through Jesus, the King, our Lord and Savior, and pray by your spirit these things happen. Amen. So I spent most of the summer of my sophomore, yeah, summer of my sophomore year in Romania with a group of uh, college students. We were on missions there uh, together. And within days after being back, which I had just a short time before I went back to uh, college, then days after being back home, I was, I was there at my parents' house. And I can remember one morning, I walked into the kitchen and shortly after walking in, my dad, he had his back to me. He was, he was making his coffee um, and uh, he said, good morning, you know, how are you? And um, I replied, I mean, typical, I'm doing fine. How are you? Um, and, and dad turned around, I'll never forget it, um, which says a lot. Uh, he, uh, he, he, his eyes got big, real big. And he said calmly, as only my dad could, uh, you know, he's looking at a horrific scene, basically, and, he, and yet he's as calm as he could be. He says this, son, have you looked in the mirror this morning? And see, that's not something you ever want to hear your father say to you as a son. Son, have you looked in the mirror this morning? Um, so I, uh, I, I, I had not. Um, and uh, so I went, I looked in the mirror, and uh, I understood um, my, my face was about as big as a swollen cantaloupe. Um, I don't, I still don't know to this day what had happened. Uh, but I can remember we drove to the, um, uh, emergency room where my grandfather was parking cars as a volunteer and he saw us pull up, which I'm sure he saw my dad pull up all the time at the hospital. And so he, he just came as friendly as he could be, he reached into his head in the car. He said, good morning. And he saw me and then he just said, oh. Well, I know why y'all are here. Um, and uh, so I, I, and as when we walked in the ER, the lady says, you know, uh, she's looking down, why are you here? And uh, I said, well, I've got this. She looked up and she said, oh, <laughs> um, one person after another, after another acknowledged something about me that I didn't know had I not seen a mirror. I think dad's favorite part was when they decided they were going to give me an injection to solve this problem. I was uh, in the room busy rolling up my sleeve and the nurse, a little gruff, uh, she walked in and she said, uh, what you doing rolling up your sleeve? And I said, well, for the injection, and she grinned real big and she said, it's not going in your arm. Um, but I, I, I can't help but think, I still think to this day, if you ask me how I'm doing, you'll probably get an answer on the lines of, I think I'm doing okay. Um, because ever since that moment, I've realized uh, there could be things that I'm wholly unaware of um, about how I am doing. Oftentimes, we are wrong about what is really our main problem. 
or what is really our main challenge. We can be so easily fooled. There's a repeated theme in the Bible about our inability to accurately diagnose our condition on our own, apart from the help of God. And so as we look at 1 Samuel 4 this morning, we are going to see the Israelites completely miss the most important problem in front of them and really completely misunderstand who was their main and most dangerous adversary. So we're just going to walk through this together. It is just phenomenal how it's written. So it starts off there, verse 1, that sentence, which feels like a throwaway sentence. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. So it tells us that the word of Samuel, so the word of Samuel came to Israel. It's a bridge between chapters 2 and 3 and then chapter 4. In chapter 2, remember we learned that judgment was coming to the wayward sons of Eli. It's coming for Hophni and Phinehas. They would be judged. And we were told that they will die on the same day. Two weeks prior, uh, when, uh, when Pastor Mark led us through 1 Samuel 3, he emphasized in chapter 3 that God was showing mercy to his people by speaking, by giving them his word. But in that word, God said that a day was coming that, uh, that God would bring a shocking judgment upon Israel and that this day would co coincide with the judgment of Eli's sons. So as you come into chapter four, we've now got all this background and we know a few things. We know that one, a day of shocking judgment is coming to all of Israel. And two, we know that on that day, that this shocking judgment comes to all of Israel. On that day, Hophni and Phinehas will die. And three, this will be the, the beginning of the end of Eli's line. So now, feeling all of that, now you can catch the force of that statement. The word of Samuel came to all of Israel. We know that what follows is the fulfillment of that horrible day of judgment that God had privately announced to Samuel. It would now be experienced publicly by all of Israel. It's incredible incredible way to open up this chapter. Just beautiful. And so here's the second part of uh, verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. So the Philistines, which that just means sea peoples, had been a constant nemesis in the life of the Israelites all the way back to the time of Judges, especially um, making a nuisance during the, uh, the judgeship of Samson. Um, and from that time all the way to the current context of 1 Samuel, where we are. Um, so here they gathered, the Philistines gathered at Aphek, uh, which would, Aphek was basically a border town between the, the uh, territories held by the Israelites and then the uh, territories held by the Philistines. So Israel was a few miles away, just a couple of miles away at what would be uh, Ebenezer. All right, so verse 2. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So the Philistines attack and Israel is badly defeated. 
So now you got yourself a problem. You went to battle and you just got whipped. So how, how will Israel understand this problem? What are they going to do? That's the problem they think is before them. The problem they have assessed that is before them is bad Philistines beat us horribly. We got issues. Will they see that what is in front of them is actually not their biggest problem? And say that again. Will they see that what is in front of them is actually not their biggest problem? Look at verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout, so the earth resounded. So first of all, in credit, giving credit to the Israelites, they understood their problem as a theological problem. They see the stage is filled with more players than just Israelites and Philistines. In particular, they interpret the events in light of Yahweh, that is, in, in light of the Lord. They don't surmise that they were merely defeated by the Philistines, but they also surmise that, sorry, they also don't surmise that the fake gods of the Philistines outpowered Yahweh. Yet they rightly understand that they were beaten because God ordained this outcome. They ask, why has Yahweh, that is the Lord, it's in all caps there, that's Yahweh, why has Yahweh defeated us today? But notice their reaction. They sent for the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant is a sacred gold-plated box that sat there in the, uh, the tabernacle and later in the temple. God gave them very specific instructions on how the ark should be handled. And, and in it was the most uh, uh, valuable of Israel's possessions. And it served as a visible symbol, this is key, of the presence of Yahweh among his people. Think where ark is, is the presence of Yahweh. So here in verse 4, it is, it is called the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. So the lid of the Ark, it had two cherubim on top of it. They're gold-plated, or solid gold cherubim. And, and these were like angel-like creatures that were engraved upon it. And, and they, this area here was considered the mercy seat. This is where they would put the blood on Yom Kippur uh, on the Day of Atonement uh, uh, for the people. It was considered the most tangible place where the presence of Yahweh would reside. So the, the use of this title uh, for the ark shows that Israel believed. The way that it talks about here, go get the, the ark of Yahweh of hosts. When he comes, he's going to bring an army. That's what it's saying. Uh, and it, when it talks about it. And then it also talks about this, these cherubim that are coming with them. The obvious logic was this. Look, we lost. We lost because, you know what? 
we didn't have enough presence of Yahweh. So they're not completely devoid. They're not acting like atheists. They recognize they need Yahweh. That's so key to understanding. They get it. We lost. We lost because we just don't have enough Yahweh. We got to get some more Yahweh here, some more of our God here. So we got to rectify this problem. Let's get that problem solved. And then our other problem, the Philistines, that'll go away. So verse four um, uh, uh, puts, they, they've, they've gone by that point. They've retrieved the ark. Um, and verse four puts the ark right there in proximity with Hophni and Phinehas. Now, this is masterful storytelling. I absolutely love it because it foreshadows what's about to come about to the ark and the priest. But it also places value on the decision to go fetch the ark. It's as if to say, Hophni and Phinehas thought this was a good idea, and therefore you can rest assured this was not a good idea. So in verse 5, we see all of Israel... They all now believe. As this thing comes into the camp, they all believe, okay, lost 4,000, but this problem is now solved. A minor tweak. And now everything should be should go well. A couple of things. I, I actually think we should reserve judgment on whether uh, they should or should not have retrieved the ark. There actually are times in Israel's history where they use the ark. Uh, like when they came across the Jordan, uh, when they went around Jericho multiple times, we see that David actually took the ark into battle as well. You can think of there about the story with Uriah. Um, so I, I don't think that was the main mistake. The mistake of Israel was thinking that all they needed was a minor religious adjustment and they could bring Yahweh back in line. They failed to see they were in danger of Yahweh's wrath over their consistent disobedience. Instead of cheering when the ark showed up, there should have been solemn repentance and confession. All right, now check out verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what is this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. They said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So the logic of Israel went like this. Israel's logic was we are Yahweh's people and we just got our tails kicked. Yahweh's people don't get their tails kicked. Therefore, we need to bring more Yahweh and we'll get a different outcome. Well, the Philistines realize that the ark had come and they begin to buy into this logic themselves. They start to believe that the ark means more Yahweh and they think about what that's meant in the past for human history as they've seen it, um, and in particular, the Egyptians. And now they're sorely afraid. Verse 8, woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Well, now that's a terrific question. Talk about way to read your history. That's great. And the, plot, the implied answer is nobody. So they, they pack up and go home, right? No. This is the most ridiculous part of this story. It's crazy. Verse 9, 
can only be understood is God giving the Philistines over to do the crazy so that God could do his bidding. Verse 9 should be, and when the, when the Israelites woke up, the Philistines had packed up. But that's not verse 9. Verse 9 says, this is the Philistines still, take courage and be men, O Philistines. You catch the irony. They're afraid of the mighty gods, but their response is, but let's be men, okay? Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Folks, this makes no sense. It's supposed to make no sense. The Philistines were nothing compared to the Egyptians. What should you do? Go home. Don't stay and fight. Well, they do. And if you're looking for a long, drawn-out, blow-by-blow tell of how this goes, you are going to be sorely disappointed. The storytelling here is amazing. The understatement is so powerful. Verse 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great, a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Just like that, the unthinkable happened. Not only did the ark not help the Israelites, but their losses were much worse, much, much worse, almost in order of magnitude, worse but that's not even close to the shocking part verse 11 and the ark was captured we are told that the ark was captured in the exact same sentence we are told of Hophni and Phineas's death it's masterful storytelling recall in chapter 3 God told Samuel on that day the day that Hophni and Phineas die on that uh, on that day, he would do something to cause tingling in the ears of the people of Israel. Well, here you go. Let the tingling begin. The ark of God has been captured. And now you feel the full weight of that opening sentence. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. All of Israel is feeling the weight of this. And hence, the remaining verses. So let's look at 12 and 8, 318 together. So a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, and he came to Shiloh the same day. With his clothes torn, dirt on his head, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is the uproar? Then the man hurried and came to Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so they could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, well, how did it go, my son? He brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured as soon as as he mentioned, the ark of God, 
Eli fell backwards from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken. He died for the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel 40 years. So recall, so they're at Shiloh. Recall it's from Shiloh that they had to come fetch the ark. So Eli and most doubtless, most of all the rest of Israel knew that the ark had been taken from Shiloh to Aphek to secure a victory. They awaited news back in Shiloh, some 20 miles away from the battle. So verse 12, this is, this is crazy. It tells us of the poor soul who ran. So it's about 20 miles between Aphek and Shiloh. He, he ran 20 miles and arrived the same day. I mean, Iron Man, eat your heart out. This fellow fought an entire battle, finished that, and said, guess it's about time to run a marathon. And he runs, I guess, a little bit short of a marathon, and he, and he, and he runs back. Try that one, uh, Brandon. I want to see that. Um, please record that one, right? Um, so verse 13, it, it has Eli. He's sitting and he's watching the road. I'm telling you, I'm just enthralled with this storyteller. But wait a second, what do you mean he's watching from the road, man? Come on, you just tell us a little bit later that Eli's so old he can't what? See, ah, this is so good. But you know what it's like to watch and not see? It's a different level of watching. You've done that. Ever checked your mail daily waiting for an envelope to arrive? Is it here? Is it here? Is it here? Have you ever checked your email minute by minute refreshing it? waiting for that message or refresh the website over and over, hoping for a result or, or a grade to show up. That is what it means to watch without seeing. That's the desperation. And what was Eli watching for? Please, somebody tell me my sons are okay. No, he wanted to know about the ark of God. I love the dramatic buildup in verse 16. I am he who is at the battle today. Okay, we established that. Could you just tell me how it went? These next lines that are pinned, they're just brilliant. They're horrific news. News that no parent can ever imagine is delivered. That your sons, both your sons, are dead. But the storyteller here makes sure that we see that's not what kills Eli. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. It's not the news of his sons that killed him. It's the news that the ark had been captured. And then, and then you get those details at the end of 18 for the man was old and heavy. I mean, really? See, if I'm Eli, I'm in heaven right now saying, I mean, come on. There is enough shame for the family already. You got to write at the very end of my story that I was old and fat, and that's going to be an eternal truth written forever, always in the eternal narrative. Poor Eli. So you see the focal point, right? It's not the defeat by the foreign army. That's what's supposed to just, just take our breath away. It's not the loss of 30,000 sons or husbands and fathers, nor the loss of the next line, all those in line for the high priest. 
The focus by the author is the obvious loss of the ark. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory of God has, de the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Phineas's wife hears that the ark was captured. Oh, and that her husband and her father-in-law are dead. She's thrown into labor. Some midwife trying to be sweet and give her some encouragement says, don't worry, it's a baby boy. And in her dying moment, she says, okay, we'll name him Ichabod. It's a Hebrew word that means where's the kabod? Remember, kabod is glory or honor. Where's the kabod? Or the glory has departed. The final statement of the chapter is from this woman. The glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured. We don't have time to go into it, but I think there's something really neat going on about Hannah opening up in, in 1 Samuel 1 and this woman closing 1 Samuel 4. So, Years later, I found this really helpful this week. In one of the historical psalms, this is not going to be that many years later from this, but sometime later, uh, the psalmist writes in Psalmist 78, he gives us commentary. So I love it when you get Scripture commentating on Scripture, especially when it's that close. Anytime it's really, really helpful. But he says this in verse 58 through 61, For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. That's the event we're talking about. The tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity. That's the ark going away and his glory to the hand of the foe. So the psalmist tells us the events in this chapter happened as God's judgment. The ark never returns to Shiloh. And so this event is often known as the fall of Shiloh. Well, it's a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing that 500 years later, God would withdraw his abiding presence from the temple. You want to go read more about that? Check out Ezekiel chapter 10. And that's when Judah fell to the Babylonians. But it's mostly a foreshadowing of the scene on the outskirts of Jerusalem, some 1,000 years after the fall of Shiloh, is the perfect Son of God, the perfect glory of God, was forsaken on a cross as He owned our sin and shame. There, the enemy, not the Philistines, the enemy of death, carted off the author of life our sin left Jesus, the Son of God, 
in a borrowed tomb. And so this is the moment in 1 Samuel of judgment. It was real. And it pointed to future moments of judgment. But we knew this moment was coming in 1 Samuel, didn't we? Remember how many times we've read there at the end of Judges, the final line, Judges is, tells us what happened right before the narrative of 1 Samuel. Here's how Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Recall how we saw Hannah's barrenness in chapter 1 as a picture of the spiritual barrenness of, of Israel. Recall how in chapter 2 we saw that Hophni and Phinehas' moral complacency was representative of the nation. Recall how in chapter 3 the, the picture of the nation's failure to abide God's word is given over by Eli's failure to hear from God. God's people, from the leaders down, refuse to honor God, and God cannot abide with such sin. The moment of truth has come. God has withdrawn, and the people are no different than any other rebels on planet Earth. They are now exposed. They are guilty in the sight of God, and they have not a covering of mercy. Well, by the tremendous grace of God, he does not leave his people, but he awakens and returns. Ah, oh, chapter five and six. Ah, oh, <laughs> it's beautiful. And in a like manner, God did not end the story on Good Friday on that cross, but he started a new, a new story early Sunday morning. God returned to his people. He returned to abide with his people. Jesus, praise God, the perfect ark of God, today, sits firmly secured at the right hand of God, interceding for his followers. But how? How do you go from such judgment to reuniting with God? In his mercy, God moves his people, when that time comes, to repentance and confession. We're actually going to see it. It's so great. We get Samuel speaking at the very beginning of chapter 4. There will be radio silence from Samuel all the way until chapter 7. And then all of a sudden, he speaks again. And guess what comes with it? Confession and repentance. And the mercy flows. When God moves us to repentance and confession, he gives us faith to place all our hope in Jesus, the ark of God, the one who makes peace between us and God. And hence, then we are given the abiding what? The presence of God, the very spirit of God who comes to dwell in our hearts, never to withdraw from us, never to abandon us again. But, I don't want to put too much of a positive spin too quick because I don't think that chapter allows it. Yeah, God returned to the nation of Israel and he reconciles with his people. But please understand, for many, it was too late. It was too late for Hophni and Phinehas. It was too late for those 30,000 men who didn't make it to chapter 7 but died at the hand of the Philistines as God abandoned his people, to face judgment. And there's a warning for us here. 
Mercy has been extended, but we don't know how long it will last. Whether we see it or not, our biggest problem, I pray we'll take this away from this text, our biggest problem is our need for the mercy of God. Friend, can you ponder this question? Can we ponder this question? Have I sought God and asked for mercy? Have I reconciled that my sin, it is so heinous that the God of the universe had to die naked and exposed on a cross to pay for it? If so, have I turned him and placed my life in his hands? The judgment of God, it's real. The battle of Aphek, the fall of Shiloh, proves it. But praise be to God, so also the mercy of God is just as real. And there's a blood-stained cross and an empty grave that demonstrate it. The Israelites were not reckless in calling for the ark in battle. They just mistook the most threatening enemy as the Philistines. The Israelites deep, desperately needed the ark. They needed the ark to stand between them and their main adversary. That is, they needed the ark to stand between them and God. Jesus says this so well in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who could kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. No, no, no. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What a scary picture of Israelites awakening the morning of battle with the ark right there with them. They're cool, they're collected, they're confident, and they're ready as they walked into battle, assured that Yahweh was on their side until Yahweh raised up against them and slaughtered them. We can often fool ourselves about how we are doing in general, but especially about our status before God. I give over to you Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. After the incident, as I said, when my face blew up, I remember thinking, how crazy is it? My face didn't technically blow up, but you got the picture. How crazy is it that the very thing I possess, my face, that's used to interact with everyone around me was completely messed up. I mean, just, oh, it was bad. And I was completely unaware. I'm so thankful that uh, my dad was there because I'm not going to lie, in college, I don't know, I always looked in a mirror before I walked out the door. But, but think about it. Even if we're the vainest of persons, we can't spend but so much time looking in a mirror all day long at our face. This blows me away. This really is hilarious if you think about it. You know your face about as least as anybody else around you because you look at it least. Other people see your face all day long. That's interesting. You know what? Spiritually, it's not much different. We may not know ourselves as great as we think. We need each other and we need the scriptures. Let's ask ourselves this question. Who is responsible 
for regularly delivering the word of God to me so that I'm constantly confronted with the truth of God. See, that's part of church membership. You sign on to weekly coming and hearing the word taught, preached, and prayed. You also sign on to a group of people who can speak truth into your life. Without this, we must rely solely on our own authority about the status of our souls. And there were 30,000 men who laid down and slept a great night at Ebenezer who were dead wrong. Finally, may God be merciful to us to show us our biggest need is not the problems we face, but the mercy we so desperately need. Let me say it again. May God be kind to show us that our biggest need, it's not the problems we face, but it's the mercy we desperately need. Would we learn to pray for each other with that backdrop in view? I love that we keep a list of names on our prayer list and regularly pray for them. Absolutely love it. It's kind of gotten some worldwide fame. I can't tell you the number of people in India that come to me and want me to put a name on our church's prayer list. But let's be careful to pray, not just for the problems with our bodies, but the problems with our souls. Not just our bodies, but those that we pray for. Let's not just pray for their bodies, let's pray for their souls. Yes, let's pray for a hospitalization. When one of us is hospitalized, well, that's like the battle with the Philistines. It's a real battle. We will pray that God's might would prevail in that battle. But all the while, let's pray for God's mercy in transforming and sustaining our soul through it. We will pray for battles of financial hardship. Those are real. Man, those are scary. But we will pray that God's uh, that God will meet us with mercy to build our faith and maintain our hope through it. When we pray like this, we acknowledge that God is sovereign to use every problem, every battle to remind us of our biggest need, and that is to be right with God. The text is clear. God is a God of judgment. I'll be frank with you, what I struggle with most preparing this was, oh man, this is dark. This is real dark. It and I just kept waiting for that moment where I would get some new music making me feel better about it. Um, and it doesn't come. I don't think it needs a spin on it. I don't think that's what the Bible wants on it. It wants us to know judgment is real. And it's awful. But there is mercy and it is coming. It's coming even in chapter 5. It's coming in chapter 6. And we know it comes in Bethlehem. God is a God of judgment. But praise be to God, He's a merciful God. Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new Every morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. You are so kind to give us a mirror. Otherwise, we would be so foolish about what our condition actually is. Thank you for your word that we can look in it and see what it says about us and know that it's true. Thank you for a church. Thank you for a church that by your mercy believes and teaches your word so that on a regular basis we can hear what it is that is true about our condition. Father, many of us are grieved as we consider those that we love and we recognize Many of them are like the Israelites who just went and secured the ark and they're resting right beside it, thinking, it's okay. I've got everything under control. It's just fine. And they won't hear that they need mercy. They need to trust in Christ. Father, I pray that you would open up their eyes to see I pray you'd open up opportunities for conversations. And I pray, Father, that you would be merciful to save. We know that you can. We know that you will. We pray for that, ask for that. Father, I pray now in this time together that uh, we'll just take just a moment and reflect. Reflect on the fact that your judgment is real and we deserve it. But reflect on the incredible grace that there's an empty tomb that was for the, the one who was in it was forsaken. And in so doing, he took on all the wrath of our sin. And let us trust squarely in him. Praise to our Savior.